my husband loves him some ritual. His little tum-tum can get off. His little microbiome, it says, help me. Enter Ritual. They created a three-in-one supplement, including clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gash, and diarrhea. I really like Ritual because they prioritize sustainably sourced and traceable ingredients. I love to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning along with my hot tea or coffee because I feel like it helps me start the day off right. I also love that Ritual has industry-leading sustainability standards. Ritual uses scientific tools to select lower carbon packaging, prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 20% off. Honey, I love a luxurious moment, but I also love luxury that like doesn't cost quite so much. Then I discovered Quince and it was a total game changer. They have so many different items to choose from. They have washable silk tops and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Thanks, Quince. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury, honey. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash curious. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. All month long, we are celebrating Pride Beyond Borders, and this week we're headed to East Asia. So welcome to the show, Travis S.K. Kong, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Hong Kong. His new book, Sexuality and the Rise of China, the post-1990s gay generation in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China is out now from Duke University Press. Travis, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. I usually live in Hong Kong, but I'm just like traveling to London. So do you. So we're now both in London in the morning. (laughs) We're both in London. I hate that we're not in person. I wish we were together. Yeah. Someday we'll be lucky enough to do that. And, you know, I think in the United States especially, we have this very, like, American-centric way of thinking about the world, thinking about the geography of the world, the politics of the world, just kind of all of it. I I hate to say it, but I think culturally we're selfish. And so we are trying to, like, get outside of of our little bubble and learn more about queer culture worldwide because queer culture is... It is in every continent, except for like Antarctica, but I'm sure there's been some queer people there too, you know, off and on, but we want to learn about your research, your scholarship. But before we talk about Pride Beyond Borders, let's talk borders. Geographically, can you situate us? Where are Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China? 
Right. Okay. So Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China are all situated in East Asia. The historical division in 1949 between People's Republic of China and Republic of China actually has shaped the post-war development of the three societies. Social, economic, and political transformations that actually has been taking place over the past few decades have actually tied them together. Culturally and politically intimately, so that's why I think like it's really interesting to look at how these three society in some way like interact and also like you know mingle together. Yeah, that is really interesting because you know geographically like they're all really close, like China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And if I'm hearing you right, after World War Two, like, can you just give us like a very brief geopolitical history of Mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, but, like, for dummies, like, for eighth-grade reading level of, like, America. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, the depth of your scholarship knowledge, but just, like... Let me start from Hong Kong. Hong Kong was a British colony from 1842 to 1997, but then Hong Kong actually has become an international financial centre since the 1970s. And Hong Kong actually made really significant contribution, especially economic contributions, to mainland China when China opened up in the late 1970s. But then in 1997, Hong Kong returned back to China. So Hong Kong is now uh, part of China and is called a special administrative region. Doesn't China say now that, like, they have, like, claim to Taiwan and Hong Kong. Hong Kong after 1997, you know, returned back to China. So Hong Kong is now part of China, okay? But from the mainland Chinese point of view, like, you know, they uphold, like, you know, the one China policy. So from the point of view, like, Hong Kong and Taiwan is also part of China, okay? But in Taiwan, they actually have many different political views. But now, the basic political parties, the Democratic Progressive Party, that's like, you know, all for, like, Taiwan independence. But you can see, like, you know, Taiwan is actually politically marginalized in the international stage because of, like, you know, the one China policy insisted by the Beijing government and also adopted by the United Nations and also by many countries. And then the Republic of China was actually formed in mainland China in 1911. But then, like, you know, the leader of the Kuomintang, like, you know, the Taiwanese like, political party, he relocated the government to Taiwan in 1949, you know, when he got, like, defeated by Mao Zedong. Interesting. Mm. <laughs> Dang. That right. is so interesting. I didn't know any of that. That is right. so fucking interesting. I can't even stand it. Okay. Why my book is called like, you know, Sashat and the Rise of China? Because I think right now, I mean, the past like 10 or 20 years, China has become like, you know, the key player of the new world order, you know, socially, culturally, economically, and politically. So that's why I think it's interesting to look at how these young gay men in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China, they think about themselves and they think about their love life, they think about how they're coming out, they think about who they are. So that's why I'm thinking about at this particular historical juncture, what I call the rise of China, there's a lot of really interesting going on. Yes, which leads us perfect into where we're going now, which is earlier this month, if you got to listen to our episode with Eziaku Wokocha, she encouraged us to discuss her scholarship and academic approach to Haitian Vodou on its own terms. So we'd love to do that here with your work. So what Western ideas of queerness do we need to check at the door before we even get into your work? 
Yeah, uh, this is a really good question, Jonathan. Yeah, because like um, for me, it's interesting. Like you know, because we keep talking about queer, right? But then queer is mainly used in the academia and also the LGBT plus activist in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China. Um, but for me, I think like in you know, the queer actually have two different senses. The first sense is kind of like a sexual marker, right? So when we talk about like LGBTQ, so the Q usually refers to non-normative gender and sexualities, or we can use like queer as an umbrella term. So we don't need to say like LGBT, blah, 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 you know, we just say queer, right? So this is like, you know, the sense of using queer. But then there's another sense of using queer is more to referring to kind of like an attitude, you know, talking about the practices that, you know, suggesting like non-conformity, questioning, challenging, and transgression. Okay, so that's why when we talk about queer, we can say like, if it is like a verb, so we say like, you know, to queer, or we say like, as like an adjective, you know, queer feeling and all that. So I think for me, um, I, I would like to use queer in my book more in the second sense, because as I said, like, you know, the term queer has never really been used by so-called common LGBT people in Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland Love. China. And then, like, what ideas can also help us here? Like, I love the idea of, like, transnational queer sociology. Is that, like, the idea of, like... Mm -hmm. So what I mean in my book by using that concept of transnational queer sociology is to resist sort of, like, the dominance of the Western models. But I'm not kind of, like, cut it off saying, like, okay, so we reject all the Western theory uh, because we have to use them, right? But then rather we can provincializing it. Okay, so this is, like, the one way of doing it. And second, I think, like, um, I would like to go beyond the usual so-called, like, global and local analysis of binary to think more about like what really going on in Asia. Um, so in this sense, like I want to produce more like mutually referenced and commonly shared and translocally inference experiences. So that's why like, you know, I will use the term queer, but also introduce some other terms that are more indigenous, they're more commonly used in these three different societies. So for example, that's why I use the term tongzi, which is actually like a, a term that usually used like you know by people LGBT people like you know Hong Kong Taiwan and so and that China. term which I so Tongzu yeah that phrase is used in mainland China Hong Kong and Taiwan mm -hmm. yeah what does it mean <laughs> yeah it's actually basically literally it means common will so it's like comrade like comrade like friend yeah yeah comrade so the interesting thing is kind of like you know it's revolutionary and political subjectivity because it's actually been widely used in republican china and maoist china because the term is actually talking about a member you know comrade of a political party okay so we're friends you know we are uh, political friends in that sense but what happened in 1989 in hong kong there was the first hong kong lesbian and gay film festival but then the creator used the term tongzi <laughs> to refer to gay, <laughs> gay and lesbian so the uh, film festival is not called hong kong lesbian gay film festival it's called hong kong tongzi film festival <laughs> and oh, so that's why, yeah, so the term actually kind of like, you know, uh, a kind of like a queer appropriation of LGBT in Hong Kong. It started really popular in Hong Kong, but later like spread out to Taiwan and also in mainland China. 
So that's why right now the term actually has been widely used in three in these three societies. And then, but you can see like you know the special pun in mainland China. I'm obsessed. So in in the book, you compare Tongzu. Did I say it right that time? Tongzu. Tongzu. You gotta get that Z down. Yeah. <laughs> But you compare Tongzhou cultures and identities across Hong Kong, Taiwan, yeah. and mainland China today. Yeah. But we know queer presence are often shaped by queer pasts and our ancestors. So can you give us a brief history of like the LGBTQI plus life in each place? Yeah, there's like, you know, a very long history. So like, I kind of like, you know, trying to cut it short. And you might know, like ancient China actually had a very rich tradition and literature of relative tolerance of same-sex love between both men and women, and also of like transgenderism. And homoerotic practices were actually enjoyed for a long time, but then it ended with like modernity. Okay. And there was like, you know, a sociologist called Pan Guangdan, and uh, he translated an English sexologist, Havelock Illis book called like the psychology of sex and in the book it sort of like viewed homosexuality as a sexual inversion and so dichotomized sexual normality and deviation so that's actually around like the 1930s and that actually become like the closet so that's why like you know in mainland china and also in taiwan and in hong kong homosexuality was seen more like as a mental illness because of that 1930s thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but in like the 1600s and 1700s, like, like how long ago was it when like the homosexuality and like transgender like identities were like cool or like fine? In Hong Kong, because Hong Kong was a British colony, right? So since 1842, for all the English laws to rule Hong Kong, including homosexuality. So homosexuality was actually a criminal crime in Hong Kong from 1842 to 1990. That's the year, like, you know, when homosexuality was actually decriminalized in Hong Kong. But then in China, it's different. Like, you know, in China, they never really had a law that, like, you know, criminalized homosexual act as such. But then they have some kind of, like, interesting criminal offense that relate to homosexual behavior. In that sense, it's about like hooliganism. <laughs> it's about hooligan. Mm. Okay. So in China, around like 1979 to 1997, and homosexual were actually been seen as a hooligan. So apart from being seen as a mental patient, it's also been seen as a hooligan. Okay. In Taiwan, it's quite different. But anyway, like in, in Taiwan, it's more or less like, you know, see as like a um, mental problem and also as an obsession, you know, something kind of like weird and perversion. So none of them were ever like really like in modern times, like, great, come on <laughs> over. Like it wasn't like, so there was, it was more like a subculture or like an undercurrent in all three places. So now in current day, all three places, what rights do LGBTQI plus people have? Like, is gay marriage legal? Like, what's like, what's the deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think like in, in Hong Kong, as I said, like you know, homosexual actually like a criminal 
you know, offence, right? But then it's actually decriminalised in 1990, okay? And, well, basically 1990, 1991, and then the age of consent between heterosexual and homosexual so only equalised in 2005. We still do not have things as marriage or civil partnership. We do not even have, like, you know, uh, any equal opportunity bill that actually outlaw discrimination against sexual orientation. In Taiwan, it's actually the first society in Asia that actually have same-sex marriage, and it happened in 2019. Yeah. I think I remember that. Yeah, you did, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then in mainland China, as I said, like, they actually have some criminal laws against homosexuality, but actually, like, you know, decriminalized in 1997, and also homosexuality were actually, like, taken out from the list of mental illness in 2003. But also, like in mainland China, there's no civil partnership and no same-sex marriage at all. My husband loves him some ritual. His little tum-tum can get off. His little microbiome, it says, help me. Enter Ritual. They created a three-in-one supplement, including clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gash, and diarrhea. I really like Ritual because they prioritize sustainably sourced and traceable ingredients. I love to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning along with my hot tea or coffee because I feel like it helps me start the day off right. I also love that Ritual has industry-leading sustainability standards. Ritual uses scientific tools to select lower carbon packaging, prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 20% off. Recently, I've been having some stomach problems. Everyone that I talked to recommended that I take a bunch of different supplements and vitamins, but it's kind of complicated to keep track of that many different pills and powders every day. So I decided to give AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my gut health while also supporting my immune and brain health. AG1 covers my bases with high-quality ingredients like pre- and probiotics, adaptogens, antioxidants, and whole food-sourced nutrients. AG1 also replaces my multivitamin, my pre-slash-probiotic, and my supplements to support energy and focus. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com curious. That's drinkag1.com curious. Check it out. So beyond rights, like what is acceptable? Because your work really centers around like gay men's experience. Like that's where your research is mostly like in, right? So in that sense, what is like culturally acceptable in these places for gay men? Like, are we, are we out to our families? Are we in open public relationships? Mm -hmm. Like what about prep? Like can people get prep? What about like HIV rates? What like, what, like, is there grinder? Is there some scruff? Can you... 
Like, what's the deal? I think it's like, you know, quite different when you talk about Hong Kong, mainland China and Taiwan. So that's why I focus on the young generation, what I could post 1990s generation, because like, you know, they actually experienced something quite different from the previous generation. So for example, homosexuality is no longer being seen as a crime or like, you know, mental illness. And then there's a substantial infrastructure of like, you know, queer or Tongzi consumer market and culture, you know, communities like, you know, bars, clubs, so and everything. And uh, we also kind of like can have a variety of online and offline like communities, but mainly like in, in Hong Kong and Taiwan, but not much like you know, in, in, in China. China is interesting, like you know, they only got kind of like you know, the online gay communities. And also the, the emergence of like you know, queer activism in mainly like you know, in Hong Kong and Taiwan. So for the younger generation, I think generally most of the younger generation, they could come out to their parents, but mainly in Hong Kong and Taiwan and also in the urban areas in mainland China. In mainland China, I think like, you know, most of them, they still have to struggle with getting married and all that. And so there are many different strategies, like, you know, they, some of them, they have to really marry with a heterosexual woman, or sometimes like gay men and lesbian, you know, they marry together, kind of like, you know, a fake marriage. This like, you know, something very, very common in China. But if you talk about like PrEP and HIV, like it's a shame because like, you know, in Hong Kong, we still cannot get PrEP. Yeah, because of the like, you know, of the, of the patent, you know, with Travada. And so it's really expensive. It's actually talking about 7,000 uh, Hong Kong dollars. So it's about like 700 pounds. So I don't know about like uh, the, the US. Um, uh, Probably like 500 bucks or something. 800 and 900. Oh, 800. Yeah, Jesus Christ, I can't do math. Whoa. Yeah, crazy. A month. And so most of the people in Hong Kong, I mean, gay men in Hong Kong, do just buy online or like, you know, now because like after COVID, so they can actually travel. So most of them, they would go to like Thailand and then to get PrEP. And so it's affordable in Taiwan. And the situation in, in China is quite similar, like, you know, in Hong Kong. And so most of the people, they do not be able to get PrEP. And also, like, you know, most of the people, they do not actually um, know about PrEP. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about like, you know, the ACE message, now, you know, the current message talk about you equals you, right? Undetectable means like, you know, untransmissible. I think it's still kind of like, you know, started to get popular in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China. Mm, we're big fans of you equals you around here. Okay, so, and, and even though your work does center around gay men, like, I'm sure you, because our community is very intersectional and we always, we always know what's going on. Like, what about for queer women or for like gender non-conforming people, trans people, yeah. like... Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think like, you know, for queer women and like transgender people, they kind of like, you know, get more visible, especially in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, so now, like, we also have like a Idaho event, you know, International Day Against Homophobia. But now, oh. you know, we change it like, you know, International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. So we go like, you know, Idaho. Okay. And so, like, uh, they become, like, you know, much more visible. I think lesbian getting much more visible. And transgender people, they also kind of, like, you know, get more visible. And also, we have different, like, you know, NGOs and activists and social groups that actually concern more about queer women and also transgender people. And then it now becomes, like, you know, much more visible than before. And so that thing, I, I, I think this is, like, you know, a good thing. And that's happened in Hong Kong and also, like, you know, in Taiwan and a little bit, like, in the mainland. Okay, so fucking interesting. Okay, so now, for your book, you interviewed 90 gay men in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China, all born between 1990 and 2000. Yeah. 
I will not go on a tangent about how I missed the cutoff by three years and also was born in the completely wrong place, but it's fine. It's totally fine. I just want you to interview me someday. I feel like it would be fun. Your book is also, y'all, you have to read the book. It's so fucking fascinating. But going back in, you focused on the post-90s generation. And you mentioned earlier that it's like you did that because they had like quite a different experience than the generation before them. Can you elaborate on why? My previous work was actually talking about like older gay men in Hong Kong and talk about those gay men that actually born before the war, born before like 1950. And so they lived a very, very different lives, right? And then especially in Hong Kong, there was a time the homosexuality was actually a crime. And also at that time, they have a very close, neat family network that actually defined who you are and then you have to get married and everything. And so that's why I find like, you know, it's interesting to look at like the younger generation because they kind of like, you know, exposed a very different experience and also environments and everything. So that's why I focus much more on the younger generation after, like, you know, I research on the older gay man. And so that's why, like, uh, this book, I just want to focus more on how this younger generation does it mean that, like, you know, they're more open, they're more easy to find partners, they're more easy to come out, and then, like, you know, uh, they're more easy to do politics or activism and all that. So this is, like, you know, what the book is all about. So, okay, so can you introduce us to some of the men who you interviewed? Like, who were some of the ones that just really stuck in your mind? And how do these young people describe themselves, their sexualities and their gender identities in these locations? Right, okay. Well, So uh, let me tell you three stories, three short stories, right? Okay, uh, the first one is called Yifan, and then uh, he's a guy from mainland China. He's born in a rural village in a small province in mainland China, in Sanshi, and then he got a degree, and then he moved to Shanghai. That's where we met. And then he, like, you know, got a job and then he moved around a little bit in China. That's actually very common, you know, for the younger generation in mainland. Anyway, like, he ended up staying in Shenzhen. That's like, you know, southern part of China, very close to Hong Kong. And he lived with his boyfriend, okay, in a flat. And his sister sometimes came to visit him. But then he was separate, like, you know, the band with his partner and then pretend mm. that they're just friends, even though his sister knew that, you know, they are together. Okay. And he has a very strong Chinese identity and he really strongly believed in the one China policy. So he really want like, you know, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China to be united. And then it's really interesting because the post-1980s generation, they wanted to go outside and then to see the world. But then for this post-90s generation, they say like, if we really want to see the world, come to China because China is the world. So in some way, they're very confident, you know, they're really aggressive, you know, they're very competitive, they just want to do good in study, in, in, in the job. But in the private life, they still struggle with their sexual identity. They still, like, uh, kind of have to think about, like, oh, how can I actually please my parents? Should I get married with a woman? Should I find a lesbian to get married? Da, 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 da. And so they actually really been struggle around all that. So that was our story of Ifan for yeah. mainland China. Yes. Okay. But so what about him and his boyfriend? Like, are they still together? Yeah, they're still together. 
Is the boyfriend mad that he doesn't tell the sister or like, does he understand? Yeah. No, he understands. Now, what about, what about openness? Like, are we like doing open relationships in China or are oh, they yeah. more like, no, we want to only fuck each other? <laughs> well, there are different ways, like, especially for these young men. So, it's, okay, okay. So it's kind of similar to here. Like, everyone's yeah. like doing it, like, everyone's kind of charting their own thing. Right. Like, yeah. Some people. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. But then what about like STDs other than PrEP, like, or HIV? Like, what if you get like, what if Ifan and his boyfriend go, Right, have, yeah. What if they go fuck a couple who's got the syphilis, honey? How are they going to get their, right. like, antibiotic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you have to go to, like, the hospital, like, you know, to get... Is there, like, universal health care in China, though? Is that, like, part of, like, what communism? Like, do you get, like, some good-ass doctors or no? Yeah, we do. But then, like, you know, in some way, I think, like, in, in mainland China, not just in mainland China, but also, like, in you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan, though, HIV is still, like, a big taboo. So, like, you know, most of the people, like, you know, they don't really want to let people know, and then they still live in the closet. And in mainland like it's not really that easy that you come out you know as HIV passive passive you can also like you know go to public health services you know to get the, the prescription but then you have to carry like you know the social taboo and also the social stigma that oh you know you got STD oh you got HIV and AIDS and all that and so that's why like you know they might just go to some private like you know pharmacies uh, you know to get the drugs uh, you know and all that okay that makes sense Okay, wait, so that's Ifan. What about, so then we go to Hong Kong. What's that story? Well, yeah, the Hong Kong one is interesting. Like, it's uh, Bobby, coming from a very working-class family, and then still live with, like, his parents, which is very common in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is very small. And so this kind of, like, family co-residence is very, very common. And he lived with his parents, and, like, uh, he actually shared, like, the bun bat, you know, with his mom. And uh, he graduated, you know, get a job, and also, like, you know, work very hard, like, and get, like, a master degree, and another master degree, and another master degree. And he really wanted to, like, you know, be, like, a, a registered, like, social worker, okay? And uh, he's single, but he's really want to, like, you know, find a boyfriend, okay? But because of, like, what happened in Hong Kong in the past few years, he identified himself more as a yellow ribbon person, you know, the yellow ribbon, kind of, like, you know, more pro So they were more, like... Yes. Right? And then we have the blue ribbon, um, kind of like, you know, talk about pro-establishment, you know, pro-government, pro-Beijing, and then pro-police. Okay. And this is something really interesting for the young gay generations in Hong Kong because the political affiliation seems to, like, enter into the private life. So for Bobby, like, uh, he really wants to get a boyfriend. But it's like, you know, even, like, that guy is gorgeous and really, like, you know, fulfill all my fantasy. If he's, like, uh, a blue ribbon guy, then I wouldn't date him. So this is quite interesting, you know, because now political affiliation seems to be, like, a major deal-breaker. It's kind of like that in America, too. Like, every once in a while, there's these, like, weird Republican oh, gays. And right. if one of those fuckers is like, yeah, Trump's good to queer people, like, I ain't sucking your dick, honey. <laughs> no. get the Put that thing away. No one wants to see that. Not to compare it to Western things, but just fascinating. Okay, so, but is he going to find a boyfriend? Like, what's the deal? Isn't it hard to date if you're living with your parents? Like, is there a lot? Because we said earlier, like, there is fun gay stuff in Hong Kong now yeah bobby is interesting because like you know as i said like uh, he really wants to have a boyfriend but you know can't really get one and this is also quite common when they talk about their love life right and then they actually see monogamy one-to-one relationship as the ideal but of course like you know in reality they know that this is actually a challenge right so if for those who actually like you know having a boyfriend and then they were kind of like uh vulturing out sort of like 
together or separately, openly or privately to explore all sorts of like you know relationship, open relationship, threesome, whatever. Okay, so this is something quite interesting. And then the other way is like you know some of them you just want to stay single. I mean like Barbie, like you know you just say like oh yeah I just want to be single because like from the point of view like actually getting a boyfriend is not that easy. You know they like using app. All the time, right? You talk about grinder, talk about scruff, and that's the thing. But then they find like it's actually really time consuming and tiring. <laughs> yeah, Bobby said like, oh well, like um, you might like send like hundred like you know to a hundred people, right? But then uh, at the end of the day, you might only get like. Ten or twenty reply to you, and then you can only chat to two or three. But then you don't really want to see anyone. But then it all ended up talked about an hour a day. So that's why, like, you know, it's actually really time consuming. And at the end of the day, they may not actually get anything. So he's kind of okay. He doesn't really want a boyfriend like how Ifan really wants like a yeah. boyfriend. Well, boyfriend like, like yeah, but Ifan is different. Like you know, yeah, and also like he's really into that monogamous relationship. Right, with but Bobby's about. like, honey, no. I'm living with my parents. I'm not in a rush. Yeah, like I'm trying to fuck the people. I'm trying to figure it out. Like <laughs> right. I want to figure yeah. out what's up. Yeah, and he's also like very like pro. Okay, I, that's yeah. fun. Um, oh my god, I'm so annoying. I'm having that intrusive thought of like, I'm like, I want to hook them up. Maybe they'll <laughs> fall in love with each other. Maybe like, you know, the boy from Hong Kong and the boy from mainland China. And they have like differing views, but then like it just all subsides and they fall in love. Do you think that maybe Ifan and Bobby could fall in love? Oh, no. <laughs> maybe. maybe no. Maybe. 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 Like, right? It's like yeah, a maybe. <laughs> Should you hook them up, or would that be like undoctorly? Would that be like unacademic for you to hook them up? Maybe they'll find each other because they'll read the book themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's one thing, like you know, because Bobby, like, oh, there's another form of relationship. It's called plain ambiguous. I don't know, like, you know, is there something in in the states? It's like they kind of like you know, again, going out with some other guys, but they're not really serious, you know, not really committed. But it's more serious than like sort of like a fuck buddy. Oh yeah. It's like a situationship. All right, situationship, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of a relation, it's like it's like this guy who like you know behind closed doors he'll be like, yeah, I really right. am into you and stuff, but then like won't really commit to right. you. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. These are actually very very common, you know, among this young generation. Yes. Like, yeah. It's kind of like that um three LW song like from the night. It's like or the early two. That's like players they gonna play, and haters they gonna hate. And but yeah, it's like they're just they're gonna do what they're gonna do. Okay, I love that. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, 
I love adulting. And you know what else I love? Is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. So what else about Bobby? Like, is that him in a nutshell? Are we going to Taiwan now for the story in Taiwan? Well, yeah, he's actually thinking about, like, you know, moving to Taiwan. But because, like, you know, he lived with his parents and he's the only son. And so he's worried about, like, you know, the health of his parents. And, like, he doesn't really want to... Oh, so Bobby was thinking of moving to Taiwan. Yeah, because of the political situation in Hong Kong. This young generation, they kind of, like, feel very depressed and defeated and so that's why like they kind of like trying to find way to get out from Hong Kong for some of them. Okay, so that's Bobby and so who's our person in Taiwan that really stuck out for you? Yeah, Hou. Hou is uh, is an interesting guy. Like uh, he's like living with his mom and uh, his dad passed away and then he also got really good education and also like in the young generation in Taiwan, like uh, they, most of them, they got really good education. But then the thing is like the Taiwan economy is not that good. So even though he has a really good education, he doesn't really got a very good job, you know. Well, like the job is okay, but the, the salary is really low. And uh, he's really out like uh, to his mom and then he's going out with a boyfriend and his mom loves his boyfriend and <laughs> like they get along for a while and he's also like other young generation in Taiwan when he was younger he was heavily involved with the sunflower movement in 2014 okay and he has a very strong distinctive Taiwanese identity like that young generation, which means that they do not identify themselves as Chinese because they think that Taiwanese is a very open society and also have freedom of speech and equality and democracy and everything. So they're very proud of it. And also because like they have the same-sex marriage in 2019, so that actually make them even prouder. They say, wow, look, like yeah, we are actually the first society in Asia that actually have seems as marriage. In some way, they're very optimistic, you know, about the future. That's so freaking, I'm all the way in. Okay, so one thing we didn't talk about, but I'm curious, what about, like, for all three, like, are we talking about, like, top, bottoms, verse, like, is that how they talk about it, like, sexually? 
And then what about like internalized homophobia or like femme mask, mm. like femme shaming? Like, is there like a desire for like a more masculine man or is it kind of like similar to here in that like some are into femme people and some don't care? Some are like, like what's like the kind of subcultures of the queer, like gay man community of this generation? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking me this question. Well, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, we call it like one means top, zero means bottom. Mm. <laughs> Ten means various, versatile. Ten. I was like, is it one half? <laughs> no, yeah, ten. Okay, cute. Got it. Okay. Yeah, and like, yeah, and I think like, you know, no matter I talked about Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China, I find something a little bit like a... Uh, um, alarming is that kind of like what I call like a homonormative masculinity in the way that this seems to be like the ideal form of masculinity to measure all sort of like gay man. And the first dimension of it is about the body, gender performance. So you should be like cisgender, you should be like strict acting. Okay, and also you should have like you know a masculine like six pack type of like gym body, and then you should look healthy, and uh, so this is one thing. And then the second thing is about that coupled intimacy that I just told you. You know, they, you know, in some way like they think that monogamy is the ideal, even though they might have a lot of different affairs or whatever. Like you know, and uh, and. And thirdly, it's about that middle class sensibility. That means like, oh, you have to look decent. You know, you shouldn't do this and that. Like, you know, and uh, and finally, it's talking about that political conservatism. That you know, don't do anything radical, subversive, or whatever. I think this, in some way, is like very strong in these three societies. So, in the sense, like they have a very clear idea about what we call the good gay. And bad gay, okay. So if you're like in you know, HIV, if you're like into cam fun, cam sex, sex work, or like into BDSM and all that, like, uh, then you would some kind be regarded as bad gay. You guys, if you don't know what cam fun is, that's like, like it's like meth, it's like party drugs, like yeah, it's like a thing. It's like what I talk about in the book. Is so is meth and like the proliferation of like chem sex drugs, like. Is that an issue in these three places? Yeah, it's really kind of like back. Like, I think since like 2005 in Hong Kong. And so that's why around that time, the HIV rate actually, you know, rise up. But this few years kind of like dropped, you know, because of like people taking prep. I interviewed quite a few, like uh, they actually got three, like, you know, they're gay and then they're HIV and also they into camp sex. And I asked them, okay, so which identity you find like the most difficult to come out? And then they said, HIV. And then like, yeah, it's really hard. And then for gay, it's fine. Like, you know, I can tell people that I'm gay. But drugs is okay, like in the ham sex community. Okay, so then you dedicate like an entire chapter of the book to coming out stories, mm. which I thought was really interesting. So the idea, it sounds like of all three, Taiwan is the most queer friendly. Yeah. But not as to say that I'm sure homophobia still exists there. I'm sure there's like some unaccepting families there still. Like it's like there's, you know, hard to say a blanket statement about any place anywhere. But like, what does it mean for men to come out in each of these places? Yeah, I, I think like the Western coming out model actually really based on what we call like identity politics, right? That means like, you know, you struggle for identity, talking about the development of like 
sexual communities and then the growth of political movement. Yeah, and so in that sense, like you come out and then you come out to yourself and then to your family, your friends, and then to the whole world. Okay, but then in the Chinese context, I think was it interesting because of the very family centered culture, and so coming out has always been a double closet from my point of view. The first, of course, is like. Heterosexuality versus homosexuality, but then the second class act actually whether you would like to perform a traditional family role of being a good son or not. Okay, so a lot of like、uh, gay men I talk to, like you know, when they come out to their parents, and then the parents say, "All right, honey, so when are you going to get married?" <laughs> so he's still like thinking about like you know whether you would still perform some kind of like you know expectation from your family. And so this is something quite interesting. And so, from a point of view, I think like you know, coming out is kind of like a scaffolding process. That means like it's talking about a reconciliation between like your parents' expectation and the children's expectation. But I think like for the younger generation, the parents' expectation actually shift from being normal to being happy. So before it's like, all right, you know, you have to be normal. You know, you have to follow like all the other person. You know, be being that heterosexual life. But now, like you know, being happy is more important. Okay, so that's like you know, suggest that like parents are a little bit more receptive, especially in Hong Kong and Taiwan, but not really like you know mainland. And then for children, they also kind of like shift from like pleasing the parents, you know, to be myself. So now like you know, if I really want to you know be myself, then I just come out. You know, I just tell you that who I am. You know, no matter you accept me or not. Okay. But then like you know, no matter what sort of like in you know, a way that they really want to come out, I think like you know, it's still kind of like talking around the parameters of the family. So as I told you, like in mainland China, they really have a a lot of like marriage pressure. So some of them, like they might think about like you know, getting married with a straight woman. Some of them are thinking about like getting married with a lesbian, or some of them is a interesting strategy we call it, like coming home. Coming home is the way that you bring your partner, your boyfriend or girlfriend, home, but then you don't really disclose your relationship, and then it's kind of like playing around the fact like. Oh, I know you know. You you know what I mean. Like it's more tactic. The you know so it's more kind of like subtle. So you don't really say it out loud, but then you just assume your parents would know. So if you were coming home, would the partner like come to like a family function or a family dinner? Yeah, but then they wouldn't really disclose that this is my boyfriend. They're not gonna be like, "This is my partner." They're just like, "This is my friend." Yeah, this is my friend. Like yeah, and my friend. Yeah. <laughs> My friend, that's all. Yeah. Okay, I love、yeah. that. That's kind of fun. So it's like a little bit less. Maybe it's like a little bit less clearly defined. No, it's just like its own thing. Like as compared to like a Western way of coming out. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's more about like you know the situation in mainland China, and also like you know it's talked about more in the rural villages that like you know they they need to like you know really still live in the deep closet, and in Hong Kong in in Taiwan is much better. So coming out is not just like in the Western sense talking about identity politics. That's why I talk about relational politics because like you know most part of coming out in the Chinese context is the way how you can actually get recognition you know from your parents expectation and all that. So it's a lot, to, you know, to deal with your parents and your family. Like if you're out or not. Like it's like, does your family? Yeah. Because、yeah. there's so much like emphasis right, on yeah, family. Yeah. 
Because in some way, like you know, for the Western way of coming out, it's almost always talk about leaving home, right? <laughs> but then in the Chinese context, sometimes it actually there's no space for you to really leave your NATO family because, like you know, we have a very close relationship with the NATO family. I mean, especially talking about in Hong Kong, as I told you, like most of my interviewees, they actually live with their parents. Even though they like you know twenty age or even like you know thirty age, if you're single, then you still like you know have to live with your parents. Ah, okay, that's okay. Yes, okay. So in each place, like, what different kind of like Tongzu communities could people join, like in person and online? Yeah, in Taiwan, I think it's like well established. You know, if you talk about like the Tongzu, the queer world, every year they have a. The largest like gay parade scheduled on the last Saturday in October, and then they have like you know all sorts of bars and club, you know, and catering for all the different niches and everything, BDSM bears like whatever like, and then they have a very well established like NGOs and activists like as a support system and network, and also like at university you have all the courses on gender and sexualities and everything, and so I, I think in Taiwan it's very kind of like comprehensive and well established. In Hong Kong, it's more or less the same, but because of the political situation in in the past few years, so we couldn't really. Have any like large scale like demonstration, rally, march, and everything, you know? and so that's why we stopped like in having our gay pride for three years, three four years already. And uh, in mainland China, it's interesting. They do not really actually have many like physical space. Yeah, because like uh, most of the bars and clubs, the or saunas and everything, they are very frequently being like raided by the police. Even in like Shanghai, Beijing, like the really big ass places. Yeah, especially if you talk about Beijing and Shanghai, and then these are the big cities that actually like you know received much more like surveillance by the government. If you talk about second tier cities, they, sometimes they might be better. But uh, if you talk about Beijing and Shanghai, like yeah, most of these like spaces are actually you know really being closed down, and. Uh, also recently, like at university, most of the courses on gender and sexuality actually have been closed. In mainland uh, China? Yes, in mainland China. And also, you've talked about like uh, NGO and queer Tongzi activism. It's really, really hard to implement in mainland China right now. And most of the like rainbow groups in universities, they all closed down. For most of the young gay men I talked to, they could only rely on the online queer world. And then they also kind of like, you know, find a way how they can actually like, you know, have their own queer sort of like belongings. For me, the sense of belonging to the community is much more online fragmented but imaginary okay and I remember there's one guy and he talked to me like oh, how I knew about homosexuality is actually when I was like in junior secondary school I got like a female classmate and then she's a fan of boys love do you know boys love no no boys love is like uh, the Japanese manga okay it's actually really written and drawn by strict Japanese women and then the audience were really like Japanese female ordinance, okay? But then depicted a very typical, like, very beautiful, romanticized sort of, like, boy-boy's love. 
<laughs> yeah. But very pretty, type of like boys. And this is all like fantasy, okay? And then this is what we call like the, the boys love novel. And then one of my interviewees, and then he said like, oh, my understanding of it is actually true. These female classmates, you know, the understanding of this Japanese manga. And so what he got is actually a Chinese translation of Japanese manga who actually depict a very particular and also a not very realistic kind of like romantic homosexual love. <laughs> so you can see all this very interesting imagination that what they have because they could not actually really have any physical contact and physical socialization with other gay men. So that's for me, it's something really fascinating. It, it really, it is. So, because in the book, you write about surveillance and censorship on mainland China and how that has affected Tongzhu groups and how Tongzhu groups have had to, like, learn how to navigate, you know, amongst this government oversight, which is what we're talking about. So it sounds like censorship really shapes so many aspects of young queer life. Has it gotten worse lately in mainland China? Like, did it used to be better? Or has it always kind of been like that? Well, it really depends on like which political regime we're talking about. Like, and uh, I think under the current political regime, it's actually getting more and more like uh, censorship. And homosexuality you know, uh, was actually one of the list that you cannot talk about in public media. So that's why in television, you cannot talk about homosexuality. Yeah, because Travis, I think I just saw an article or it was like a commercial that was like on like Chinese state government and it was about like making like manly men and it was like all these like big like Chinese guys that were just like fucking ripping shit apart and they were like soldiers and they were like, they were worried like they're doing this like concerted push because they were like worried about feminine men or like homosexuality. So they're like, we need to like really like butch it the fuck up over here. Is that like a thing? Because like they're worried about like how queer we are or something? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Why is all this queer backlash all over the place? Yeah, well, I, I think, like, you know, they, they really kind of, like, reinforced a very proper masculinity and femininity. And so that's why, like, you cannot actually be feminine, you know, if a man, you know, you have to be really strict acting and cisgender. And I think, like, you know, this reinforced that whole notion of, traditional masculinity and femininity, which in some way align with nationalism. For example, there's like a, a very famous and popular television program in mainland China, and it's called Gaidinen. And then the story actually based on the boys' love story. So it's very homoerotic, okay? But then when we made it in the television program, they actually like, you know, have to dilute the relationship. And then they call it like the socialist brotherhood. <laughs> So you have to come a fashion, like, you know, you can't talk about homoerotic love, you know, you cannot talk about like, you know, these are two guys, you know, they love each other. You have to come a fashion, like, you know, as a brotherhood, as a bromance. A brotherhood. Yeah, so this is like one thing, okay? And so if you're talking about like, you know, the NGO or like, you know, queer or Tongzi activism, this is the way that how they have to play around. Usually, like, you know, you have to play around as or come a fashion as an HIV AIDS organization. And because, like, if you talk about, like, LGBTQ, it's very easy you talk about human rights. 
And then it's actually a very, very sensitive topic and vocabulary in mainland China. You cannot talk about human rights. So that's why you have to change and then to shift your discourse. And then you have to kind of like, you know, change your rhetoric and how you can actually frame the thing. So that's why like they have to frame that, okay, so we talk about public health. We talk about like, you know, the public health of the generation, you know, of the whole general population and thing. So this is the way that how you can actually pause, how you can actually get funding. But at the same time, you also get surveillance by the government. So it's, I think it's correct to say that on mainland China, the government poses the greatest threat to gay rights, like on mainland China. So is it also true that what poses the greatest threat to gay rights in Taiwan and Hong Kong is further control by mainland Chinese government? Well, I think in, in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, uh, the government is not actually like the major threat, but it's more about religion. Yeah. Evangelical Christianity actually has a really big force in Hong Kong and in Taiwan. Hong Kong is mainly because like, Hong Kong was a British colony, right? And so in the early time, like a lot of like missionaries, they came to Hong Kong and they tried to help the population. And so they provide a lot of like, you know, social and medical services. And so that's how like the missionary and also Christianity has become like a major moral force in Hong Kong. And a lot of like government officials, they are either Christians or Catholics. Okay. So in that sense, like, you know, they actually form a very strong opposing force against any progressive movement of the Tongji development in Hong Kong. And the cases are a little bit similar in Taiwan. And also this religious war, they actually uh, make a very strategic alliance among Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore and South Korea. So this kind of like transnational religious alliance actually become really big. And so they share their experiences, you know, they actually learn from each other. And so they actually become like the major opposing force against the Tongzi development and activism in Hong Kong and in Taiwan. So like, you know, during the whole like fight for the same sex marriage in Taiwan, they actually got a lot of like, you know, backlash from the religious groups. Mm. This has, like, been one of the, my favorite episodes ever. I can't stand it. So you also write that, like, part of Tongzu culture is about Tongzu activism. And we've talked about kind of, like, the political divide in Hong Kong, like, the blue ribbon, yellow ribbon, which was fascinating. So, like, in mainland China, though, like, activism or protest is, like, I mean, can't you just get, like, arrested for even talking about that? Like, it's not, like, we're not really talking about activism or protest in mainland China. So is Tongzu activism even, like, it, or it's just more, like, subtle camouflage? Like, you have to know where to look. It's more, like... Yeah, I, I mean, especially recently, like, you know, the, uh, most of the Tongzu NGOs in China, they have to be really low-key. And uh, have I heard about, like, in 20, if my memory is correct, like, I think it's 2015, there was what we now call the Feminist Five. Okay, there are five feminists, and some of them are lesbian. And then I uh, just wanted to make kind of like a uh, public statement by going to different train stations in mainland China to raise the public awareness about sexual harassment. So actually nothing about, like, you know, Tongzi or queer activism at all. So something really general. Real, and it's just like you know, want to raise the public awareness of like uh, sexual harassment on the International Women's Day, 
and then they just want to do some like you know uh, public art you know behavioral art in different train station and then just a few days before they wanted to do that they posted on social media two or three days before and five of them actually got arrested so later we call them like the families five so i think these kind of like you know visible more confrontational kind of a protest is almost not really possible in mainland china right now and so what is interesting is the way that how these NGOs or Chongzhi activists has to work along the parameters of nationalism. I can give you two examples. One is like a dating app. It's called Brood. Okay, so it's the color blue, but with a D, Brood. And it's the most famous and popular dating app in mainland China right now. But then if you go to the website and if you go to the app, they would never talk about homosexuality or even Tongzi or gay or whatever. They just emphasize this is a public platform for socializing for public health okay and so this is the way that how you can only play around you know making use of the rhetoric of public health and nationalism and another one is p-flat china you know p-flat right yeah yeah and then p-flat china is another really popular ngo in mainland china and what is interesting is the way that how they're trying to appeal to the society is through these parents of LGBT people. And then they can actually go and then face the camera and then say like, well, you know, my kid is gay, lesbian, queer, whatever. But then how about like we think about tolerance? How about we talk about family love and support and care? So they make use of this Confucian notion of parental love, support mm. and tolerance, you know, to gain the acceptance from the society. But it being called P-Flag is like allowed? Yeah, it's allowed for a couple of years. But also recently, because in the Chinese name, they actually have the term homosexuality in it. Okay, but then recently they also forced by the authorities that they have to change the name. Now they change the name to True Self. Be true uh. to yourself. And then it's just like two weeks ago, I think it was on the 16th or 15th of May this year. On the same day, there's two things happen. One is like a very long standing NGO in mainland China called Beijing Tongzi Center were actually forced to close down. And on the same day in Taiwan, they actually approved for same-sex couples to adopt children. Yeah, so it's sort of like, you know, kind of like, you know. So different. Yeah, so different because of the socioeconomic and political circumstances in these three societies that are actually really shaping, you know, the queer subjectivities among, you know, these three locales. So... And and we talked about this earlier, but like even though a lot of these young gay men are charting their own path, they are living a different existence than their um you know the ones who have come before. Their behavior is still like it's giving homonormative and like what this like kind of straight acting mask for mask butch for butch thing is. And we've talked about that, but do you think that the next generation of gay men will follow suit? Is there any sort of like is there a thawing of this? Is there any more like trans acceptance or like femme acceptance within the queer community? 
Yeah, that's like you know the main trend. You know the dominant trend of it is talking about what I talked about that homonormative masculinity. Like you know you have to be very butch. You know cisgender, straight acting. Da 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 da. But also we got like you know the diversity and also kind of like you know the resistance and not really coming from my respondents, my participant that I talked to. You know this ninety young gay man. But it's more like about like you know my conversation. You know with other queer people in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China, and some of the really non-binary. Binary, you know, some really into like um, BDSM. Some of them, like you know, uh, you know, trans men, trans women, pre or post cop. You know, so there's all sort of this like you know uh, spectrum. But then in some way they're a little bit more hidden. But I can see like maybe the next generation they could be more like you know okay to come out and also they could be you know make more visible. And then the queer community in some way like uh, they can tolerate. I'm not saying like you know they can totally you know accept. All these, like you know, different like non-normative genders and sexualities. But then, as I said, like a lot of like, especially gay men, they're actually very homophobic, and also they're very homonormative in the sense that oh, like oh, how could you be trans? You know, how could you be so sissy? How could you be this and that? Like you know, yes. very very like you know, anti-femme, anti-trans, anti-sissy, and anti whatever. Like you know, they they have a very strong sense of homonormative. Like yeah, so that's why I think this is like really something that we have to work on. You'll have to do another book when like the people who were born like from two thousand and two thousand and ten yeah. turn like twenty five. Like when the so if you're born in two thousand and ten, you'd be twenty five and like uh thirty five. Yeah. So you'll have to do it like maybe like twenty thirty or twenty thirty five or something. We'll see like how yeah. those how those ones are doing. Sure, because also you um. So in this new book, you focus on men in their 20s, but you were saying earlier that you also, some of your previous work discussed yeah. um, men that were born pre-war in Hong yeah. Kong. And, and because we talked about some of that, I want to ask specifically, did you see any intergenerational solidarity or like stories of like younger queer men who you interviewed for this book who had any sort of like interaction or like, was there any sort of that like respecting of queer elders or even knowledge of queer elders in the younger gays that you interviewed for this book? Yeah, well, I think it's like kind of like started to recognize like, you know, the existence of this older gay man. I mean, like, you know, after I finished my book, Many years ago, like yeah, in uh, 2014, and then I uh, published a book talking about like the oral history of the gay man in Hong Kong in Chinese. But later, like in 2019, I translated and then there's the English version of it. And after I finished the book and I helped this older gay man to form a group, at that time it's called Gay and Grey, but now we change it to Grey and Pride. Okay, and uh, there's a social group, and then every month we have a gathering, and then we do you know yum cha like you know that's sort of like the Chinese dim sum, the Thailand little food, oh, cool. right? Yeah, and then we, we you know we just go to like a restaurant and have dim sum, have yum cha, and then after that then we go to like a, an NGO venue, and then we have a social gathering, and sometimes we like you know ask different professional to come over to talk about different things like you know to ask a lawyer to come over to talk about like oh you should write a will and how you should write a will mm. blah, blah. or like you know some medical doctors to come over and to talk about their different health issues physical mental emotional sexual da, da, da. and sometimes like we might have like you know some people to come over and then uh, to teach them to do yoga and <laughs> acupuncture and all that like so yeah it's kind of like a social activities you know to, to help this like older gay man in Hong Kong. 
And I'm so fortunate because like I know a, a film director called Ray Young, and then he read my book, and then he really loved my book, and then is inspired by my book, based on my book, and then he made a movie called Sok Sok. That's so cool. <laughs> right, yeah. And then I think the English translation of the movie is something called Twilight Kiss or something. Like, yeah, I can find out for you then. Like, yeah, it's actually talk about like, you know, two older gay men, they both married and then they met and then like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, starting a, you know, romance. And then I also like, you know, find some younger gay man and then to mingle with this older gay man and then for them to really talk to each other. And the one thing is interesting because for the older generation if you want to become a man there's two major things one is like being responsible the other thing is being respectable okay so under it what before what do you mean by like responsible is like you have to get married you know you have to get your job support your family having children and everything and how to become a respectable man is like don't do anything that brings shame to your family so that's why for the older gay man they have to be responsible so most of them they got married and also they have to be respectable so that's why they could not actually tell anyone that they were gay that uh, you know they have the same sex desires everything but then for the younger generation it's very different to be responsible means like you know how to be responsible to myself so not coming out is regarded as an irresponsible act <laughs> and respectable means like not just like you know you have a good job and a good uh, education degree and you have to be a respectable citizen but you also have to be a respectable gay man in the queer community. So that's why, like, they have the, all the hierarchies that we just talked about, like, you know, uh, how you should be, like, to be the proper gay. So in that kind of, like, contrast, and then that's why, like, uh, for the younger generation, sometimes they don't really understand about the older generation. So they would blame about the older generation that, oh, why, mm. how come you cannot come out to your family? And then why do you still, like, you know, hang out in public toilet, you know? And then for sex, and that is so disgusting, and then it's so bad and so shameful, da, 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 da. But I mean, like, you know, through this kind of, like, conversation that when I bring these two different generations to talk to each other, then they kind of, like, you know, know that oh yeah now I understand like in your historical context like I understand why you're doing this and that so I think this kind of like communication is very crucial and important for them to know and understand each other Travis I have to tell you I think it was like last year I don't remember what I oh I think I was doing press for my last book which was an essay book and this journalist who was in his 20s was like so, Jonathan, you know, as a community elder, what do you think about, you know, X, Y, Z? And I was like, damn, really? Like, oh, like, it's like, fuck, it's with these young gays, honey, they do, it's like 36, honey. <laughs> it's fine. I'm fine. I'm not remembering it or talking about it in my podcast, like, over a year later yeah. or anything. I'm totally fine. <laughs> and I'm also very pro-aging. Like, I love aging. I hope I get to be 100. So, yay for me being an elder, I guess. Yeah. I think your work and your scholarship is so cool. And I just love the work that you've done so much, which like, what has it been like for you researching and writing this book? Like, did you get to travel to all three mm. places or were you like not able to because of COVID? Yeah. Like, what was it like researching and doing everything? Yeah, well, I actually started this research in 2017. And so that was a time that I could travel. So I picked Shanghai 
and also Taipei in Taiwan. So it's mainly Hong Kong, Taipei, and Shanghai for comparison, you know. And I did a lot of like, you know, field trips and you know, go to Taiwan and China and then to do the interviews. And uh, yeah, but because of COVID, so that's how I stopped. Then I did follow up and then talk to them through Zoom or half of them. And so I still keep very close contact with some of them. And so that's how it's appeared in the book as sort of like, you know, focused case studies. And uh, I find it like really interesting and also very moving in a way like, you know, to think about like uh, their hopes, their dreams, their despair, you know, they cried and then they loved and all that sort of like, you know, emotions. I really enjoy talking to these young people and young gay men. And then it's also the way that how they trust me and then they, they, they tell me about their own stories and all the struggle, which I find is really fascinating. You know, how they come out to themselves, how they, you know, come out to the parents and how they like, you know, find a, a boyfriend or not find a boyfriend and how they actually get engaged, you know, with the communities and how they do like activism and that's the thing. I find it really fascinating. And also that's how I think the way that, uh, yeah, being a young Chinese gay man actually means very differently in these three different locales. And also how our own individual Biographies or subjectivities in some way actually being shaped by the broader social, economic, and political circumstances and forces. So this is like you know how I want to like you know tease out and then you know and then to talk about the interplay between these two society structure and individual agency and all that. Like yeah, so I find like you know really rewarding you know to uh, to interview these people and then to talk to them and to follow their lives. So having had over 90 of these conversations that were over several, you know, in person, Zoom following up afterwards, like these are very in-depth, like you're laughing, you're crying, you have learned so much about like the socio and political differences between all of these three places and the young gay men who live there. And you heard what their hopes and dreams were for themselves. What are your hopes and dreams for the people who you interviewed and for people like them? Like, what do you hope is coming for the young queer people of China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong? Yeah, I, what, what I find, like, you know, something that really moved me is resilience. It's the way that in some way they're vulnerable, but at the same time, they're very tough. Especially, I mean, like guys in mainland China, you know, they're born in the situation that like there are a lot of like limitation and restraints and everything, but then they still find their own way how they actually like maximize their own space, you know, to form their own love and then to try to like, you know, form their own identity. And I also feel like um, very sympathetic to gay men in Hong Kong. I mean, the young generation, you know, because it's actually changed quite a lot in the past few years. And so they seem to be very, very different from the Hong Kong they've been born and raised. And so they actually have their own courage and have their own way how they can still find their own space to struggle. And so this is something that I'm really admired. And then in Taiwan, I, I, I think like, you know, they, 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 they just enjoy what they have, you know. They have a really democratic society, very open-minded, and then they have a very well-established like um, queer communities, gay world. And so I'm just happy for them. Like, you know, they can actually enjoy all these things that they have. So yeah, I mean, like, you know, my hope is like, I just want them to be happy in a way. And then just want them to like, uh, really know how to come through this stage of being like a young queer. 
youth because youth is a very in some way it's kind of like a very ambiguous sort of like embarrassing period. You know, it's full of like exper- experimentation, a lot of like uncertainty, but at the same time, it's a lot about like possibilities, a lot of like you know hopes and other thing, and especially for queer youth because like they do not actually follow the linear development of a very heteronormative like course, so they need to find their own way. So I I actually. In some way, I actually learned quite a lot from them. I'm happy for that. And now that the book is out, what's next for you and your work? What What's up next? Yeah, well, yeah. now I'm going to parents. I'm going to talk to parents of our LGBT kids in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Yeah, I would like to do it in Taiwan and like, you know, in, in, in China. Well, there's some people like, you know, doing it in Taiwan and China. So no one actually doing it in Hong Kong. So that's why I'm doing it in Hong Kong right now. Travis, we have to have you back to talk about that when you get yeah, done. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, uh, yeah, I actually started to talk about like 20 mothers and fathers. It was really moving. The story, I oh, oh God, like heartbreaking. But like, you know, really, really, really good. Oh my God, we well, can't wait for you to finish that up. I feel like I learned so much today. I hope you did too, Getting Curious fam. This was such an amazing start. We're also going to be sharing um, more stuff on social. So once you've listened to this, get on the gram. We're going to be sharing more there. Travis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you for your scholarship. Your book is out now, y'all, if you want to get it. Sexuality and the Rise of China, the post-1990s gay generation in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China is out now. Again, thank you so much, Travis. You're amazing. Thanks for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's so lovely to talk to you. (laughs) You too. (laughs) You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guests and their areas of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram at Curious with JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Chris McClure, with production support from Emily Bosick and Julie Carrillo. Hey.